The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. I think my new favorite thing, Holly, is Mm -hmm. the fact that we get to talk to the Swiss Army Knife of people. And for those who don't know what a Swiss Army Knife of person, a Swiss Army Knife person is, it's somebody who has multiple talents, can do multiple things. It's like a Swiss Army Knife who can, you know, do multiple things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And our guest today can do multiple things. Whether it's uh, speaking, whether it's singing, teacher, leader. Writing a book. How are you? I'm doing great, Johnny. How are you? I'm good. Is there anything that you can't do? Yeah, good question. Yes, I'm working on computer tech. Real estate, I got to learn. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Next. (laughs) Well, we like to ask the skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Trinita, who are you and where did you come from? <laughs> who are you and where did it come from? Well, my name's Trinita Bowden, and um, I'm a woman of many hats. I would say that more so than the Swiss Army Knife, Johnny. Um, but uh, yeah, where do I come from? I was born in New Brunswick. Uh, my roots are Micmac from the East. I am just so honored I came from my mother's womb, (laughs) designed and created by the father himself. And so um, I am just so honored that he has designedly uh, purposed his plan for my life. And so, yeah, where did I come from? I'm pretty much uh, really honored um, of what God is doing right now and being a child of the king and doing the father's business. What was life like growing up for you? Yeah, growing up was not an easy journey. I mean, I was a really happy-go-lucky young girl, just loved to see the beauty of family bonding, coming together. And of course, you know, growing up, I, my my parents uh, parted, I, I believe I was around three at that time, they had separated, which was a real hit for me. And um, so growing up with that family separation was a challenge. My brother and I went with my mom um, miles away from my father, which was so sad. And uh, we ended up uh, in London, Ontario, of all places, why he was at the time, I believe, in Nova Scotia and then moved to Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And so um, my mom, just watching my mom raise her children as a single parent mom and uh, just broken from the broke up from the relationship. And uh, then she started looking for love in all the wrong places. And she started getting involved with all these men in her life that were just not really there for her. And um, it became a real mess. I saw a lot of violence in the home, uh, you know, her fending for her life in many cases. And at the age of about 11 to 15, um, my mom and I, we moved into this low rental area. Um, we saw more dogs than we saw people. <laughs> and uh, and everybody said, Have you, were you raised in a reserve? We weren't, I wasn't raised in a reserve. Um, but the area that we lived in, it felt like it, it was such a, a mission field in itself. And yet, you know, God had a plan in that journey. And it was watching the abuse and the violence that obviously God strengthened me through that process. I was in that 60 scoop era, as many people may not know, from 1951 to 1991. A lot of people think that the 60 scoop era was only with the children in Indigenous uh, residential schools. But it was a whole system at that time where 
people were getting pulled out and the foster care system in general is a real challenge. That would be an area I'd like to see some mending in. But interesting enough, um, from 15 or 11 to 15, um, I moved into about six foster homes and uh, that was a deep challenge. Um, you know, the court system blew me away of how they take care of kids in the midst of child and parent separation. It just blew my mind. You know, you just get strong and tough and you just live, you have to survive, right? So you just mm-hmm. get everything you have to do. But I remember I always hoped that we could have foster care homes near where my mom could live because I, near where my mom was living because I wanted to make sure she was okay. And uh, so I became a parent to a parent. Uh, learned how to live on my own. And at the age of 15, it was a challenge. And the social service system, I'm sure would have loved me to come back into their system. But somehow a door opened and said, we've got an apartment for rent. <laughs> so I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> and that's at 15? I was at 15. Yeah, moving towards wow. 16. But at 15 years old, I worked as a hairdresser, I was still very responsible, young girl. I was just graduating from hairdressing school, which was in the high school at the time. So I I had an idea of a goal. I love to do hair and art. And uh, I became a fitness instructor. And so I just knew that there was purpose in my life, but I was just so um, hindered by the mm. circumstances around me, the environment. Um, so, yeah, so I moved out at 15. I remember an ex-boyfriend had called and said, hey, I got an apartment for rent. We're near my friend's house. Do you want to come? Well, I was like, sure, anything to get out of this situation. And I went and I thought I had the world by the hook, you guys. And I went out and I got my apartment. I worked two days a week. I think I was paying $170 um, a month for rent oh. back in those days. $170? <laughs> a month for oh, rent. Man. Now it's at two or three I more know. zeros. It's crazy. Now it's 170 a day. I know. <laughs> and so I worked and I was very responsible, paid my rent, did everything I had to do. Um, sadly to say, there was some, some hurtful things that happened in between there. But I just uh, knew I needed to get out. I didn't want to go back into the system. Mm-hmm. And so I got my own apartment and then I started living with roommates and over time, you know, doing my own thing, the party life, you know, yeah. every following the pattern. Yeah. And then, um, you know, it was a toss up uh, to go back home. And I just at that point, I turned 16. That was a legal age. That you could do whatever you needed to do. So I just kept on going. I lived on my own and sadly to say wrong relationships growing up and um but yet god had his hand on me and um it's funny because i'm preparing to reach some of our young people and i'm thinking how can i merge this i was asked to speak about drug addiction and uh suicide prevention i'm like how am i going to do this and so merging into that story i talk about you know when you're at that breaking point and that's where I was. I was at a breaking point where I didn't know my dad. I hadn't seen my dad for 21 years since I was, gosh, forever since we split, yeah. my parents left. So I met my dad at the age of 21. And it was around that time where I was just like, if this is what life is like, I do not want it. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in uh, marijuana, which I can't believe is legalized today, but, you know, marijuana, but then it led to other drugs and it usually stems from when people don't know how to balance out that brokenness uh, from breakups, from broken relationships, and they don't fully know who they are and obviously don't have a relationship fully with Christ. Mm -hmm. And so at that time I was a near sheep, but I wasn't fully understanding how to come to him. And, um, and I remember sitting on the solarium 
as I was working as a hairdresser in my um, early 20s at that point. And, uh, and I said, God, this is what life is like. I don't want it. And I realized these are the words I heard the inner voice of God speak to me. And I didn't even invite him into my life yet. And I heard yeah. him say this, your life can change if you take the first step. I suggest you go find it. Exact words. That's what I heard. Hmm. And I went, okay. And somehow I started merging into the vocational transition. And, and it wasn't like, come to me, my daughter, you know, it was yeah. just really wild. <laughs> and so I, I, I was like, oh, okay, so what can I do? And then I started thinking about physiotherapy and thought about joining the army so that I could pay for my schooling. <laughs> and then I thought massage therapy, I'm good with my hands. Okay. And so I started going to massage college and started to grow, started to learn about how could, for me to help other people, I've always loved to help other people, but I thought for me to help other people, I got to start with me. Mm. And so next thing you know, it was like massage college. And I went to school, started getting some training. I haven't been in the school in years. And I thought, how can I do this? And even when I was still battling with the marijuana and the drugs, God just did a miracle. And he started to show me, I can do this. In this time that you're going through all of this, how is your, you said that you obviously didn't have a relationship with your dad. How was your relationship with your mom? Because you said that you were a parent to a parent. Yeah. Well, the relationship with my mom was very challenging, you know, because uh, I love my mom. She's gone home to be the Lord now. I loved her so Mm. much. I think the hardest part was, you know, without speaking any negative and getting too deep, but it was a real challenge because I was her protector. Boyfriends would beat her up. I'd stand in front of her and stand in front of her. So you touch my mom, you got to go through me. Like that's what my life was like. So I never had any major resentment. I mean, we had fights growing up and uh, she, she was very disoriented in a lot of her pain. Um, you know, uh, she just never got over it, but yet very loving and forgiving also, because, you know, we're trying to raise a teenager who whose parent is not walking in full alignment in their leadership. <laughs> it's a big clash. And the challenging thing is I it was like God just downloaded this understanding. I can't quite put my finger on it, but when you're in the court systems and you're watching them do their little chat and they put you on a witness stand, you know, in front of the courts and the social workers and about custody. And I remember still looking from the the stand, looking down at my mom, just going, God, like, I love my mom. When you're making me testify, like it just was so strange and uh, treating her like she's a villain, treating her like she's an enemy. And meanwhile, we're a family. Like I love my mom. And so I could see how the enemy would try to tear that apart. But somehow I believe it was the hand of God um, on my life our purpose is stemmed even from those painful experiences and even good experiences. But a lot of times those painful experiences, we tend to just brush them aside. But even when I was a little girl um, at three years old, I remember raising my hand up and singing to the father, hearing my parents arguing. And I'm in the backseat of a car singing Kumbaya, asking God if he'd stop the storm. I had no clue I'd ever be a singer, rise up in faith. Now I understand the scriptures and how it all unfolded. And so during that time in the court systems and watching my mom and I go through this, you know, I see now and I believe that God somehow showed me then that the system 
is trying to tear apart family. And there was this understanding that I had, and that's why I could always embrace my mom and love her and care for her. And still right to the very end, I stood with her and, and, and led her to Christ. She knew about Jesus, but she was really hurt um, in the church. She was really hurt in her relationships. And I was, you know, we always used to sing the song together. She used to, we warped the, the 45 called uh, You Light Up My Life by Debbie Moon. So you know, I guess I was her light to her to help her stand strong. And, and, you know, I still learned as a child to always honor your parents, no matter what they've gone through, we've got to come to understand that she did what she did. because She was wounded. Right. Mm-hmm. And so here I am now telling everybody else, you can heal from your pain. You don't have to live that life that what your parents went through, what your grandparents went through, you can be the one to break the chain off of the generation now. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's what I'm doing now is I'm praying and obviously for my future Boaz, but right now God's given me that burden, you know, what's been stolen from the enemy. God wants to bring restoration. So yeah, that relationship with my mom, it was tough. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. God allowed me to have victory in the end with her. She gave her heart to the Lord. She started reading Bibles. Um, I sent her goodies and books and she watched me study when I was in theological st- school and uh, she would, I, when I, when she passed on, I remember getting one of her, her Bibles and um, she would underline it and circle it and put little, you know, quotes up there. So there was a lot of seeds that were planted and it was wonderful to give back. I'm curious, yeah. you're 11 and you are, you know, testifying essentially against your mom. Um, was there a, a party that was hopeful that the, the foster care system was going to be a safe place for you? What was it like at 11 being in that? And then did you get a safe place in the foster care system? <laughs> yes, I, I hope and pray, Holly, that somehow through all this wonderful work God's doing, that God would give me influence to speak to some of those precious ones, because um, there's a lot of work to be done. <clears throat> they mean well. They mean well. And there are a lot of times they're being dictated especially the workers, the social workers are just trying to do their job and they're under the dictatorship of the leadership and hierarchy. And a lot of it's based on budget too, Mm. I found. So, um, you know, uh, so safe place, healthy communication is really, really key in business and in leadership with families, especially Um, making people feel safe on the approach is so vital. Um, And what I experienced, um, it's tough because they, they're, they're always on alert, uh, emergency crisis alert. And I really feel as a caregiver now, one of the things I say, and I just said this to my colleague today, we cannot add value to others if we're not adding value to ourselves. Mm. And the majority of the system in this area are not, they're on overload. They're not taking care of themselves. So when they react, not everybody, okay, but there are several, at least that's what I experienced. There are several who do not create memorable experiences for the child or for the parent. Um, to this day, um, I know a few social workers in my life who I know some of those people would remember them because of the, the extra mile that they go for their clients. Mm. Um, I don't remember um, any social worker growing up. Mm. And part of it's because you're in the crisis mode, but it's yeah. how quick they are. It's so it's like a neighbor complains that there's arguing going on. Bam, police come. Right. They take you out of the home for your safety. And then they put you into a receiving home. And you're thinking as a young child, you know, you want your mommy, you want to be at home with your mom because you're still that protector. You don't want to see any harm come to her. Um, 
and they take you into a receiving home and then you're there um, in the receiving home and these people aren't trained for trauma. They're not, not even so much trauma. It's just, they're not trained for separation, right? Like for any child to be separated from their family, from their parent, that's a big deal, right? And these guys just, yeah, next, like dominoes, you know? (laughs) I'm like, guys, you guys got to get a little bit more authentic, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, so for me, um, I remember getting bullied by two girls um, who were in the room and they told me to go into my room. And these girls back in those days, I had a crossed eye. And so I used to get teased a lot when I was young. And, um, and these girls were just bullying me in the room and I did not feel safe. Now you can imagine I'm dealing with violence in the home. I need the safe place. Yeah. So I go downstairs, speak to the leadership and just say, Hey, I'd like to just stay down here with you guys. Cause I'm being bullied upstairs. And they did not acknowledge that they were just like rigid. Nope. You got to go up to your room. If you don't go up to your room, we're going to call the police. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I'm like, no, that's the worst thing you tell a child who sees police yeah. all the time at your door. So I just said, but I, I don't want to go up to my room because this is what was happening. And I really just want to stay down here with leadership. And they just were not uh, understanding. And of course I said, I wanted to stay here. And, and she said, if you don't go up to your room, we're calling the police. Well, I was just like freaking out, like not angry or aggressive, but just crying. And, and they actually called the police. And they treated me like I was some troubled kid. Now, I was troubled because of the separation, the brokenness, but I wasn't a troubled kid. I was a child who loved to grow. I was athletic. I was passionate about health and wholeness and family. And because of the environment that I was in, which many of these these precious kids are in, um, they're so misunderstood. And so um, they called the police. And when they called the police, you can imagine at that point, my gosh, what do you expect the child to do? Run. <laughs> right? yeah. And you're 11, right? Run. I see police because you think police are not helpful. They're harmful because they take you to the home and they don't help you. Right. Yeah. Um, they, you think they're helping you, but they're taking you away from the people that you love. Right. And then um, and then to top it off, whatever reports they give, they they're not out to intentionally help the parent. And I realize a police officer can only do so much. I get it. Mm-hmm. That's why they're working with social workers today. And even with that, there needs to be more understanding on how to connect with the children who dealt with foster care so that they can learn from them. It's huge. And so they handcuffed me at 11 years old. This, And I'm like, I wasn't violent with them. I wasn't kicking them. I wasn't aggressive. I didn't swear. I was just, I want my mommy. You know what I mean? I remember crying out. And the only way they thought was, they thought fit was what they naturally do in their mind is to calm people down and handcuff them. Yeah. It wasn't like I was going to jump off a bridge. It wasn't suicidal. Nothing like that. Just hurting child wanting to be home with my mom and really wanting to have some understanding, you know, what I think would have been helpful for these precious ones. If they would have just said, Hey, this is what we got to do. This is just temporary. Um, We're going to, you know, do this and this and this, and maybe write it on paper you know, show me, visualize it so that the child can be like, is that okay with you? Having consent, is that okay with you? How does that sound to you? And they never did any of that. It's just like they took their authoritative order and they treated a child as though they were a victim, a criminal, and it's wrong. And this is what happens in Indigenous communities all over Canada. Not only Indigenous communities, it probably happens to many others as well, Blacks, other nations, and so on. Um, and so that 
was a blo- like a mind blowing thing. And eventually, so back to your point of, did I feel safe? I'm like, no, no. Most of those homes, I did not feel safe. So no. I was in these yeah. homes. Then they transfer you over to these homes. And I'm grateful. Some of those foster homes were actually some of my friends from school that wanted to take me in. The system was a little different then. And uh, so what they, I think they did back in those days where I think the parent could connect with maybe people that they wanted their child to stay with, which that wasn't always wise because <laughs> my mom ended up connecting with this boyfriend who was just a, a real aggressive alcoholic and had me stay with her friend his friend who was another alcoholic and here i am serving alcohol to this family and their parties at 13 years old so um anyway so i moved from several different foster homes and there was only one out of the six that i was in that was just phenomenal and it was just in my transition stages where eventually when I moved back home and I had the chance, I moved out on my own at that point, but it was the last foster home I was in and they were a Christian family and they were amazing. And I, I actually set the foster father's brother up with my mom. And I said to her, I said, <laughs> I think you would love my mom. And he's like, well, I'd like to meet your mom someday. I'm like, great. Cause he used to bring me chips. And I thought this guy is great. He'd make a great daddy. Right. And I set them up. They went out for two years. Oh, wow. I was a matchmaker. Look so, at that that. Was, so that was a victory. And to this day, I still would like to know, I think they've probably gone home, maybe the be the Lord, but they were just amazing. They treated me in the midst of all that anguish. I felt like, like one of their own. And you could see the Christ likeness in them. They took me to church and, uh, you know, it was just amazing. So that was the good positive story was Rose and Bill were just phenomenal people that God had ordained for me to be taken care of for the next phase of my life. So it was great. We talk about faith and we talk about you dealing with all these traumas. At what point did you realize that you wanted to do ministry, whether it was through writing, whether it was through speaking, whether it was through faith arise that you're like, you know what, this is where I think God has led me to. Well, I have to say it was all process. It was all a process and even how faith arises birth. Um, you know, when, where I started ministry, I mean, when God got a hold of me, uh, John, um, you know, when I finally gave my heart to Christ, you know, when I was rolling that marijuana joint and I knew I needed a savior, I needed help. And I finally turned from all that and I invited Christ to my life. That's when I noticed I, I wanted to learn more about God. I just needed to know more about the Bible. I didn't even want to be a preacher. I didn't want to be a speaker. I I desired it when I was a little girl. I always desired to be a singer. We used to do talent time and have some fun. <laughs> I always played. I was going to be a singer. And and I didn't know 100% God's plan. But it was until I went to Bible college and realized I want to learn more about God. And I just wanted to try and learn. And so I went and I took one course. And this one lady prophesied over my life in the elevator and said, girl, you're going to get all A's. And I went, really? Wow. <laughs> so on my first course, I got A's. I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to come back for more. And and I kept doing that for several years. And um, well, a few years. And then eventually, I thought, you know what, I'm going to work towards a degree. And then I just started working toward my BA, and then uh, finished my master's after but it was during the BA time in 2009, I got ordained as an ordained minister. Um, yeah, and just started plugging away. But I all through that time, even in 1997, I mean, I started singing and, and just started writing songs 
ex-boyfriend and I, we split up. I bought a guitar and substitute and started writing <laughs> songs. Um, so, and then I started going to church, of course. And, um, you know, I, I wrote So Like an Eagle, actually, during the Passion Play. It was kind of funny. But, uh, yeah, so it was all a process. And then it, it was when, like, for our ministry, how that started was pretty much in the midst of grief, believe it or not. It was in the midst of going through a real deep, dark moment when my mom did um, pass away eventually. Um, I was praying for her healing, and I went through some church hurt in the process at the same time. And when she passed away, I was so broken. I didn't want to do ministry. I didn't even want to do Bible college. Like I was just really struggling. There, there was a percentage of that, not completely quitting, but it was part of the grief process. And then one day I was sitting on this, the, the dock at this beautiful retreat and the power of God hit me so strongly. He gave me two prophetic songs. One was called, do you know? And the other one was called faith, the rise. And I'm just sobbing as I'm playing this guitar and looking at this beautiful waters. And it's just me, God in the waters. It was so amazing. And when we began to start the ministry, it started with Servant Sock. We were thinking about how can I help our people? And I'm like, how am I going to start this ministry? I didn't know. What am I going to call it? And I tried every name that I could think of. And the Mm. Lord said, you're calling it Faith Arise. And I went, okay, God whatever your plan is. So, um, so faith arise was birth. And then we started shipping off Christmas stockings to the North 50, 50 little ones in Shashashi. And, and um, I just said, Lord, whatever I went through, I don't want to see our young kids go through. I want them to know their value, they're loved and they're precious. And uh, yeah. So that's how that started. And now you are also an author. You have been able to write music. You are speaking. Did you ever think that this is where you would end up? Did I think it as in desire and thought of it? Yes. Okay. Did I, did I feel that it was ever fully going to happen to this degree? Um, the faith, the faith said yes, but there was a huge part of me that, and I think everybody struggles with this, when you go through, when you get beaten down by many oppositions, um, sometimes you kind of have that 1% doubt, right? And Mm -hmm. you think, how can I? Now, when it came to writing the book, okay, I was one of those children in school that I didn't like to read out loud. I was afraid. I didn't understand half the words. I couldn't pronounce them properly. I always took reading classes with my, with my guidance counselor because reading was something I struggled with a lot. Um, You know, uh, I was told I could never sing by people close to me. And I know they meant they were probably just goofing around, but that really imparts into the lives of our kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I began to believe that lie. And I share that in my book um, of really pressing in from limiting beliefs, because really you have to press in with the reins of Jesus and know that when he calls you to do something, you've got to do it. And so I, I I'm flabbergasted on the book. I will say that. Um, because I was always taught people who write books that every I has to be dotted. And, oh, my gosh, if you miss an E, it's just not good enough that <laughs> you better not write it because it's got to be perfect. And that's what I was taught. And until I connected with um, the Precious Bestseller and Fire team and they kicked me right out of the nest. And one of the quotes that Nick had shared, he said, um, done beats perfect. 
And I said, Lord, I'm going to do this. And I, I got an editor. I said, we're going to do this. And I started seven chapters last year. And uh, I said, we're going to do this. And so I put the reins of Jesus in spite of all the distractions and uh, lived out the story, you know, and the strategies. And I said, Lord, if I'm speaking to you guys, how can I help you and the listeners break free from the weight that they're feeling, the distractions that they face, the bullying that they've experienced, whether it's church hurt, family hurt, whatever it is. Um, and how can they soar in full abundance and help others heal their pain? You know, we know Jesus heals pain, all pain, but it's that empathy that what we've gone through, the comfort we've received, God wants us to help other people in the process. So at first, I never thought I'd write the book um, 100%. There was that 99%, there was that 1% that I struggled. And, um, and, and because I went through so much grief, right, from being bullied and put down, I dealt with a lot of church hurt in the last 2000, well, 2015 onwards. So that was, you're in survival mode. And I said, I'm coming out of survival mode. I'm going to write this book and several books, and we're going to do this. So, yeah, so it's really great. What makes you not quit? You have like a hurdle. And you're yeah. like, I'm just going to soar above it. I'm fine. I'm good. I got well, this. Well, when I think about you know, <laughs> you know, Canadian Bible Society, they asked me to do a little video uh, for our young people. They, they're doing a program called Overcomers. And what a joy that was to do that with them. And um, and I, I talked a lot about, I forgot to bring my little baby eagle, but I have this little stuffed eagle. And um, I teach people that like an eagle soaring through the storm, the amazing thing is when an eagle soars through the storm, it has to lock in its wings. Mm. There's no turning back. Yeah. And quitting is not an option. And as we're taking a good look at what's happening today, um, it is easier to quit than it is to persevere. And so we have to be soldiers in Christ to help others endure not only the cross and know Christ and give our all because the purposes that God has for us are so much greater. And John Maxwell, my favorite mentor, one of the things he says, um, he gives a demonstration of a person. He goes, he tells his colleague, he says, give me a, give me a headlock and then pull me down, pull me down. He's trying to show him something. And so he gets the guy to pull him down. And John Maxwell says, one thing people need to understand is when you try to pull me down, you go down with it. Go, go down with me. And this is what people need to understand is we need to be the greatest cheerleaders right now to help people achieve, to help them rise up into their purpose in this time, this hour. Um, people are so competitive and, and it's just crazy. And really what we should be doing is going, yeah, Holly, yeah, John, way to go for all that you do. Thanks for all you do. You guys are winners and, and to speak life into your life because you're the frontliners making a change. Right. And so when you have that understanding of knowing who you are um, in Christ, nothing can pull you down. Right. When you get back into the cleft of the rock and you get back in and you're going to go sometimes through the heaving grievings and there might John Maxwell. I love it. He says this. But, John, don't you reach out to people that encourage you? He says, no, I encourage myself. And to be honest, I grew up where I didn't have a lot of that. So I sometimes do look for support from people you look you 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 hope that people would be out there to encourage you but truthfully i'm like get me on my exercise bike get me on my computer give me the voice text and we're going to start talking and i'm like i'm going to use the pain for the purpose that god wants to use it for 
Mm-hmm. And, and I want to help other people soar. So there is no quitting. And, and I'm just, you know, there's, there's times when you, like the Bible says, you know, we've been crushed, but you know, we're not destroyed and uh, mm-hmm. we have to persevere, persevere, press in and persevere at the same time. We talk about in the hills and valleys of life, uh, where we ask God that question, why me? Why are you using me for this? Why do I have to go through this? Can you think for yourself, one of those moments where you're talking to God and asking that question, why me? You know, what's funny is I never asked that question, really. You never asked why me? Well, yeah, maybe I did. There, I never really asked him verbally to say, why me, God? I just, I just always, I've always asked him to help me in the process. Like, I, I just knew there was oppositions and things happening and I don't understand it. Um, it's not fair, you know, and just help me. And I, I can't understand it. Maybe I just had a heart of gratitude and a hopeful heart. Yeah. I was had a hopeful heart growing up um, that when I saw like, you know, people trying to cause harm, I would take the harm at the time. And then I would just bing, I'd be like a boomerang. Next. <laughs> like, no. That's the way I grew up. And, and um, you know, I, I guess you could say I kind of did in a way, like when, when I struggled with the drugs component, you know, I did ask that question, like, yes, this is what life was like. I don't want a part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could say, why me at that point? Because I was struggling with the drugs. I was at my deepest, darkest moment where I was firstly being disobedient. I was weak. I was not even grasping the, how God saw me in his eyes fully to live for him, to do what, um, he wanted me to do. So yeah, I guess you could say in a way I kind of did say why me, but not to the point where it was a regular routine. It was just right. something that when you're in survival mode, um, I guess you don't really ask that question really so much. Um, it's just, you're, you're kind of moving from the cage going, how can I survive? What can I do here? How can I go here? What's next? You know, how can I do this? Mm-hmm. And it's wild, but you're like a runner running this race to try to get to the finish line. And you're just kind of pushing off these demons that are in your way and you don't understand it. And of course you're living out some of those demons, of course, through the drugs, the alcohol, the swearing, the bad behavior. But it was when I gave my heart to the Lord. Um, I never really asked why me specifically, but my cry was, God, use me. Mm. God, use me. I remember Bob Sorgan when I was in Bible college, what really helped me, with one statement that Bob Sorge said, he has a book out called um, Praise and Worship. And in his book, um, he says, when opposition comes against you, he says, just ask the Lord, give me more souls, God. Give me more souls. And that's where I, I just have always remembered that. And as deep and dark as I've experienced, even, even which hurt hurt, you know, um, I've always said, Lord, just keep using me. Just show me what to do through the pain. Show me what to do. How to? How can I help heal, assist in the healing to those who may not be seeing? Help me with leadership. Help me with Indigenous Canada. Help me with family. And just use me to um, be the vessel, be the change in the process of it rather than why me. But I was listening to Terry Savelle yesterday and she said, we had a big flood. I did everything possible. We did everything. We started off our new house and everything. And then all of a sudden we got a flood. And she said, I could have complained and grumbled and why me, God. But she said, instead, I remember what my dad said. 
Jerry Savelle and she said, he just said, show gratitude. <laughs> That's the mm. opposite. <laughs> and so I'm learning this even more. Um, even in the midst of the anguish, you have to press in and thank God that we're here. We've got life. You know, even Ken Davis, he says that when he was struggling with his brokenness before uh, in the journey of his career, he just said, I'm fully alive. You know, we're fully alive to do what God has called us to do to make a difference. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be difficult a lot of the time. And yes, we do need the friends to come alongside of us. But if we don't, thank God we got Jesus to help us endure. Yeah. The, uh, the book Healing from Pain to Purpose, which is yeah. available now. Or check out her ministry, faitharise.com. Trinita, thank you so very much for taking some time today. It's really an honor being with you guys. And I pray blessing over you and every life that you touch on this podcast. I just pray God will just minister to every heart. What I appreciate is we don't always go through a why me moment. There are times maybe where we're not asking God why me, but there's parts of it where we could actually look back and say, oh, why me? Or why did I go through this? Yeah, I love how hope really is a driver in her life. And she just doesn't quit. It's just so inspiring. Through all the things that we go through in life, there's always these growth moments. Yeah. And as she looks back through, you know, she, she said, I was, I was parenting a parent Mm -hmm. and to be off on your own at 15, at 16 and living and paying rent and doing adult things that you shouldn't have to do. Yeah. But yet look where she's come from and look at the growth that she's gone through. And look at the impact she's having on her community and across her country. Whether through music or uh, speaking or her book or ministry, Trinita's really done amazing things. So we, again, appreciate her for taking some time. And thank you for taking some time for downloading and listening to us. By the way, Holly, we got a couple new reviews. Oh, did we? Yeah, and it wasn't from you or my mom. (laughs) Usually it's from your mom, but what is it? No, I, I didn't write them down. I just ah, thought of this at the last minute where there's a couple of people who are like, say, said things like, I like the show. You guys are great. Holly's funny, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> All of it. Thank you. Yes. Oh, well, thank you guys so much. You can always check out our podcast wherever you have your favorite podcast platform. Just look for Wami Project and you can go to faithstrongtoday.com. Yeah.